right, well, over the next three weeks, we will be, today we're going to be in John 15, and then over the next three weeks, we'll be jumping forward to John 18 uh, as we begin looking for the next two Sundays and Good Friday uh, at those events leading up to the crucifixion uh, of Jesus and and his death. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll be in John 20 uh, as we celebrate Christ's resurrection. Uh, I really hope that over these next few weeks, and especially as we, uh, you know, get close to Easter and for Easter Sunday, that you guys will make a point of inviting people uh, to church. Um, Our service times for Easter will be our regular service times, 9 and 10.30 a.m., so nothing's going to change there. Uh, But we do want to let you know that we'll be offering full children's programming at both of those services. So uh, on a normal Sunday, it's just at the 10.30 service, but on Easter it'll be at uh, both of those services, full children's programming through uh, fifth grade. And then next Sunday, we'll have the uh, Easter invitation postcards that we always make available. We'll put a couple of those in the bulletin over the next couple of weeks. And uh, I just really hope that every single person uh, who considers this your church home will invite at least one person to church on Easter, and ideally that you would invite invite a whole bunch of people uh, between now uh, and Easter. So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but in your heart... Agree right now that you'll do that, okay? All right, thanks for the hand, Kevin. Appreciate it. Um, Well, today we're in John 15 as we continue our Jesus Speaks series, looking at the words of Jesus uh, from the Gospel of John. And uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 today. I want to go directly to the text as we get started today. Uh, So I'll read these verses. You can follow along in your Bible. uh, Or I'm learning we have to now say, or on your devices Uh, But then you quickly put those away, because if you're still reading after the text, I'm not going to buy that you're still reading the text. I'm going to think that you're reading Facebook. So you may read on your device, then put your device away. Everybody agree? Okay, or on the screen behind me. That'll work too. Uh, So here's what we read, and again, keep in mind, this is Jesus speaking. Uh, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like the branch that is thrown away and withers. Uh, Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. 
So as has been the case over the last couple of weeks, keep in mind that we are in the middle of Jesus' uh, farewell discourse here, uh, where he's sharing important things with his disciples as the time of his crucifixion uh, approaches. At the end of chapter 14, uh, Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room, uh, upper room and they begin their journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, they pass the temple... And one of the chief ornaments of the temple was a golden vine with golden clusters of grapes. It was an ornament for the temple. And some of these clusters of grapes are reported to have been as large as a man. And so this was a pretty impressive uh, ornament and very possibly was referenced by Jesus in in this discussion. Might have been the thing that that kind of uh, caused him to start to talk about this. Uh, It may have been something he used as a visual uh, as he started to teach his disciples the things that are contained here in these early verses of chapter 15. In verse 1, Jesus said that he is the true vine and the Father is the gardener. Now, it goes beyond our purposes here today to spend much time here, but in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was often spoken of uh, as the vine that God loved and tended. Generally, Israel was depicted as a, as a vine in the Old Testament when they were being chastised for not bearing the fruit uh, that God desired for them uh, to bear. But the implication of Jesus calling himself the true vine here is that Jesus has taken the place of Israel as the true vine. Now, we have to be clear that isn't to suggest that the nation of Israel isn't special to God. It is. It isn't uh, meant to suggest that Israel doesn't have a unique role in the events that lead up to the return of Christ. I believe they do. But it is to say that Jesus is introducing a new concept here, and that is that God's vineyard holds one true vine. And rather than Israel being the vine and the people of Israel being vines in God's garden, what Israel has to do now is they must inquire as to whether they are attached to the true vine, which is Jesus. No longer is Israel automatically seen as vines growing in God's vineyard. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles all, are now branches that grow out of the one true vine, Jesus Christ. A person does not belong to Jesus because of nationality. A person doesn't belong to Jesus because of nationality. A person belongs to Jesus because of faith in Jesus. Which is why Jesus, throughout John, has been telling people who thought they belonged to God because they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's been telling such people that they don't even know God. And so a change has happened here. Jesus is the true vine. Life is only found in being connected to him. And the Father is the gardener. In verse 5, Jesus says that those who belong to him are the branches. So we need to get this picture. You know, imagine a vineyard, okay? Jesus is the main stock of the vine, the life-giving source. Followers of Christ are the individual branches that grow out of the vine, and God is the owner of the vineyard. That's the picture uh, that Jesus paints for us. And, And these 11 verses makes it very clear, they make it very clear that as the owner of this vineyard, there is something that God wants out of the vineyard. 
He wants what every vineyard owner wants. He wants fruit. He wants fruit from his vineyard. He wants the vineyard that he owns to produce fruit. Now, imagine for a minute that you have gathered together your life savings. You have asked some of your relatives for a little more money because your life savings isn't enough. You have taken out a loan because all that money you've cobbled together still isn't enough. All to buy a vineyard because you've always dreamed of having a vineyard. You want to be like the Duck Dynasty family and own your own vineyard and make your own wine. Non-alcoholic, of course. That was so funny. You guys are... (laughs) You invest all the money. You, You get the deed to the vineyard. Growing season rolls around, but nothing grows. You're not getting any fruit. You're not going to be happy about that. Not going to like that. You own a vineyard. You want fruit from that vineyard. You know, God has invested heavily in his vineyard. He paid for it with the life of his son, Jesus. And so, paying such a high price for his vineyard, God wants fruit from his vineyard. You and I are the branches in the vineyard, so he wants fruit from us. Here's a truth that Christians need to grasp a hold of and keep a tight grip on. God did not save us just so that he could hang out with us in heaven forever. He did not save you or me just because we're really cool. And he knew that to have us in heaven would like really up the coolness quotient of heaven. That's not what he did. Yes, he did save us for heaven. There's no doubt about that. But not just for heaven. We need to deal with this. God saved us because he loves us. But he also saved us because he wants something out of us. He wants some fruit to come out of our lives. All 11 verses that we've read today are focused on the importance of bearing fruit. And they make the point uh, quite plainly, God wants fruit from his vineyard. He wants fruit from you. He wants fruit from me. Why does God want fruit from his garden? Why does God want you and I to be fruitful? Look at verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. God wants you to bear fruit because he gets glory from you bearing fruit. God wants you to bear fruit because it shows that you're his disciple. Those of you who have been around here a while, you know that that the, the number one reason I believe that the world is antagonistic toward Christians is because the world hates Jesus might sound a little strong, but but actually when you get into verses 18 through 27 of this 15th chapter, which we're not going to deal with today, but if you want to take time to read those later today, that is exactly why Jesus says the world hates his disciples. 
And so many Christians disagree with this today. They, they think that the world loves Jesus and that the problem is there are a bunch of horrible Christians that are, are causing people not to be able to come close to Jesus. That's, that's what they think. Now, it's true some Christians are horrible. But, but Jesus seems pretty clear <laughs> that, that Christians are hated not so much because they're so horrible, but because the world actually hates him. And so they hate Christians because they're connected to him. And, and, and so, you know, I think most of the church world has assessed this exactly the, the wrong way. And so I think that's the number one reason the world is antagonistic toward Christians. I think the Bible bears that out. I think Jesus clearly teaches that. But I will tell you today what I think the number two reason is. And, and it's because we tell them that they need what we have. But they look at our lives and they see no evidence that we are any different than they are. We tell them they need Jesus to have joy. But we don't have any joy. We tell them that Jesus will give them peace. We don't have any peace. We tell them that Jesus will make you love everybody. But we don't love anyone. We tell them that Jesus will empower them to live a life that's surrendered to God. But they know enough about our lives to know that a whole bunch of our life is not surrendered to God. We tell them that Jesus will set them free from their addictions. All the while we've made peace with our own addictions. So the... Significant, a significant reason, the number two reason, I would say, in my opinion, the world is antagonistic toward Christians is because they are not seeing much in the way of transformed lives. When we only tell, but we don't show, they rightly question why they should bother with any of this. God wants us to bear fruit for his glory. He wants us bearing fruit to show that we're his disciples. He wants people seeing our changed lives and giving him glory because of our changed lives. Now, the idea that some Christians have that we should only show and never tell that, that's a misguided and a, and a non-biblical idea. The gospel must be proclaimed with words. It must be. But if you're all tell and no show, not many people are going to be impressed enough to question if there might be something we have that they need. Look at verse 11. We'll reference this verse again in a few minutes. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He's told them what? I think this verse applies to everything we've just read in the preceding verses. He's told them about the importance of fruitfulness. He's told them how to be fruitful, which we'll talk about here in a minute. He's warned against unfruitfulness, which we'll talk about here in a minute, because he wants his joy in them and he wants their joy to be complete. He wants us to get this. 
Because he wants us to have joy. He wants the joy he has to be in us. He wants us to be full of joy. He wants it to be complete in us. So God wants us to be fruitful for his glory, showing that we're his disciples. He, he uh, wants us to be fruitful because he wants us to have joy, and he knows fruitfulness is the natural result of someone who is attached to Jesus, and being attached to Jesus and being fruitful because of Jesus brings joy to our lives. And so we know God wants us to be fruit, fruitful. We know why he wants us to be fruitful. But our text also addresses a, a, a problem, the problem of unfruitfulness. And so I think we have to take a minute or two to uh, consider that. Look at verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And then verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That sounds pretty, pretty rough, doesn't it? And it, it may be pretty rough. These, uh, these verses have caused some uh, problems, disagreements, you might say, in interpretation, determining exactly what we are to take from, from these verses. The clear teaching is that the branches can be broken off. But the question is, does that mean that the branches, Christians who have once been nourished by the vine of Jesus, can lose their salvation and be removed from Christ. And this has largely been answered in three, maybe four ways uh, by theologians, and I'm going to just share those with you today. Those from the Arminian tradition, which likely includes many of us here today, have often argued that the removed branches referenced here are Christians who have lost their faith and thereby lost their salvation. Now, there are great challenges to this viewpoint, and we've read some of those challenges as we've gone through the book of John. John 10, 28 is one of the challenges where Jesus said, I give them eternal life, they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Uh, so, so there's a challenge to, to this first view, uh, but it is one of the interpretive options. Uh, some have suggested that the breaking off of branches represents Christian discipline, that it is uh, the act of separating the unfruitful Christian from the rest of the body toward the end of getting their attention and seeing them eventually restored to a place of fellowship and fruitfulness. In this thinking, such people have their witness hurt. They, Because of their actions, they aren't recognized as belonging to Christ, and so they're cut off in that sense. They're, they're not recognized as belonging to Jesus. But in this view, they are not lost. And then a third view is that the cutoff branches are people who, who were and are posers. They're just posers. They, they had some superficial identity with Jesus, but they never had an internal spiritual unity with him. They are people who participate in the community of faith, but who have never embraced its truths in their own lives. And then uh, Gary Burge offers a fourth alternative. He writes about all of this interpretive struggle. He says the chief problem here is that Jesus' vine image is being pressed to answer questions it was not intended to answer. The principle is simple. Jesus the vine is the source of life. To fail to have him is to fail to have life. He, Jesus, provides this analogy to talk about his essential life-giving work, not to discuss the history of individual branches. And so there you have your basic interpretive options for these two verses. Do with them as you will. 
They are, they are yours to wrestle with and decide on. As I often am on these kind of questions, I'm a bit of a fence sitter. But here's what I would say. Whatever your interpretive choice, I think what these verses should cause us to do is to examine ourselves and to commit to remaining in the vine. Whatever the correct interpretation is doesn't matter so much if we'll allow Christ's teaching to create in us a desire to remain in him. If that results from hearing Jesus' teaching, then it doesn't matter so much for you what the correct interpretation is. If there is no desire to remain in Christ, then again, it probably doesn't matter that much what the correct interpretation here is because there's a pretty good chance if you're not concerned with remaining in Christ that you've never been saved. And so if you have no concern with remaining in Jesus, no concern with maintaining an internal spiritual relationship with Christ, no concern with being fruitful for God's kingdom, your concern is not remaining saved, your concern is getting saved. And you can do that today. You can do that today. You just surrender. You just give up. You just say, yes, I recognize I need Jesus and I I come to him and Ask in faith, Jesus, that you would save me. What's your concern today? Remaining saved or getting saved? All that being said, I, I think at a minimum, Burge's point of view should, should cause those of us who have real strong viewpoints about what verses two and six mean to at least hold those viewpoints somewhat humbly It's very possible he's right and the history of individual branches is not the point that Jesus was trying to make here. Uh, You'll have to decide. There are a lot of things like that in the Bible. You'll you'll have to decide what you feel is the right interpretation. Something interesting I found in my study this week I had not previously come upon and and, um, I'll just be honest with you. I'm, I'm not certain how I feel about this, but I thought I'd share it with you. I thought it was interesting. I guess there is some translation uncertainty with verse 2. The word that gets translated cuts off or takes away is the word A-I-R-O. Stan, how you pronounce it? Too long. Too long. We don't have that much time. I'll call it arrow. (laughs) I don't know. A-I-R-O. It's the word A-I-R-O. And it can also mean, according to William MacDonald, lifts up. Lifts up. And so McDonald offers the possibility that verse 2 might have in view the positive ministry of encouraging the fruitless branch by making it easier for it to get light and air and hopefully to bear fruit. So the image is lifting it up. It's, it's fallen onto the ground. It's covered over by, by debris. It's not getting sun and it is lifted up. I don't know. But here's what I'll say about that. I don't know if it's the right interpretation of verse two, but I am sure that there are times when someone who is truly connected to Jesus has their fruitfulness compromised. They are not producing the fruit that God desires. And when that is true, as long as there is true life-giving attachment to the vine, that branch, that person is not cut off, but rather they receive special care and attention. 
They receive special care and help from God. And that leads us to the instructions Jesus gives us in verses 1 through 11 on how to be fruitful, how we can yield the fruit that God wants from his vineyard. Look again at verse 2. He cuts off or lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. If we desire to be fruitful for God's kingdom, we need to embrace, we need to understand, we need to accept that God is going to be pruning our lives. If we're in Christ, fruit is the natural byproduct of being attached to him. There will be fruit, and God will prune us so that we're even more fruitful. That's what he's going to do. It's just what's going to happen. Now, I'm not much of a green thumb and, and... uh, Mole, Jurgen Molinar, most of you know is Mole. He keeps giving me these berry bushes that he says, all you got to do is stick them in the ground, they grow. I stick them in the ground, they die. So I don't know much about anything I'm about to say, but <laughs> here we go. Pruning is the process of removing things from a plant that could compromise the health of the plant and thereby compromise the fruitfulness of the plant. I have a lot of... Um, I don't know how to pronounce these either. Arborvita bushes, is that right? Is that close enough? Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so I have a bunch of these in, in, in my yard, and I mainly have them because when I go to Lowe's and look for bushes to plant in my yard, I look for the ones that are $7 or lower. And so I have Arborvita bushes all over my, all over my yard. That is the, the great plan we have for uh, landscaping. Uh, so I have a lot of these, and occasionally there will be a brown spot on one of them. And what do I do? I don't even know much about what's supposed to happen, but there's just something in me that naturally responds to that and says, well, that can't stay there. So I get my little, whatever you call them, clippers, and I run out there and I cut all the dead stuff off because I want to make sure that if there's any chance that dead stuff's going to spread to the rest of the tree, that, that I stop that before... Uh, before it happens. You guys know how this works better than I do. It's, it's pruning. It's getting rid of anything that compromises health. In the case of a fruit-bearing plant, it's getting rid of anything that would compromise the plant bearing fruit, yielding fruit. And so if you're attached to Jesus, you are going to be pruned. And here's why. This may sound a little hard. God is not satisfied with the fruit that he's currently getting from you. And he's not satisfied with the fruit that he's currently getting from me. He wants more fruit from us. He owns the vineyard. He wants fruit. He wants as much fruit as he can get. And so he's going to do whatever he needs to do with you to get as much fruit out of you as what he knows you can produce. God wants more from us. And so he gets rid of things that compromise our fruitfulness. He cuts them off. Sometimes he removes friendships from our lives. The wrong friends can have a devastating impact on your fruitfulness in God's vineyard. And so sometimes he'll cut friends off. 
Losing a friendship is hard, but when it's needed to increase your fruitfulness in God's kingdom, then it is the best thing for you. And you ought to sometimes thank God when friends leave your life. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes that is a good thing. thing. Sometimes God has to prune away a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Not spouses, though, so let's be clear. He might prune boyfriends and girlfriends, not spouses. Didn't want any lack of clarity on that point. Sometimes he has to prune away sinful habits that we've accommodated for years. He'll send a family member to you that for a long time has just overlooked what you've been doing. But finally, they just can't overlook it anymore. And so they they work up the courage and they come and they challenge you on something. Challenge you on your addiction. Challenge you on your poor treatment of other people. He'll send them to call you on your stuff, to hold you accountable. He might direct your family to hold an intervention for you. He, He works to cut off the disease of sin that's attached to you. Sometimes he has to cut pride off of us, prune away the pride. That can be a very painful form of pruning, but he'll do it. He'll do it because he loves us. He'll do it because he wants more fruit out of us. If you want to be fruitful in God's kingdom, you just have to know he is going to prune you. It's just part of the deal. And if you're attached to the vine and you care about being fruitful, you care about God's glory, you care about your own joy then we should welcome pruning. If we care about our own joy, we should welcome God's pruning. It might be painful at times, but we should welcome it because we know it leads to increased fruitfulness. Look at verses four and five. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And then here's the part that I want to focus on. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So so here's the second point that I want to make today about how we can be fruitful. We have to really believe what Jesus teaches here. That we can do nothing apart from him. The only way that we can bear fruit for God, the only way we bear fruit in God's vineyard, the only way we bear the fruit that God desires for us is by living in touch with Jesus moment by moment. It's not a Sunday connection with Jesus. It is an every moment connection with Jesus. And our motivation to to do that is going to be increased if we'll really believe that we can't do anything on our own. We're going to be more motivated to stay connected, to remain in Him, if we'll ever really believe, I cannot do this on my own. I can do nothing apart from Him. I cannot bear the fruit that God wants. I cannot bear the fruit he desires unless I'm attached to Jesus, the vine, every single moment. We can do nothing on our own. Friends, I'm convinced too many of us, and, and I will be happy, well not happy, but I'm willing to admit, 
uh, that this applies to, to, to me. Too many of us are trying to bear fruit for God's kingdom only out of our own human effort, thinking that if we just strain hard enough, try hard enough, fruit will result. Certainly discipleship requires effort. I'm not saying this is a no-effort enterprise. But the effort is largely engaging in the disciplines that keep us in touch with Jesus. But it is only Jesus, the vine, that can actually produce the fruit in our lives. Our motivation for practicing the disciplines, prayer, Bible reading, worship, community, serving, stewardship. Our motivation for practicing those things that keep us in touch with Jesus uh, is found to a significant degree in really believing that we cannot do anything apart from him because we can't. So if we're going to be fruitful, we're going to be pruned by God. We're going to need to believe that we're dependent on Jesus to produce the fruit that God desires. And so we're going to need to stay connected to the vine. Over and over in these verses, Jesus pleads with people to remain in him. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Verse 10, Jesus says that if we obey his commands, that we will remain in his love. And, and once again, this kind of highlights the relationship between human effort and divine empowering. We, we, we can't obey God in our own strength. We're only able to be obedient to God by being connected to the source of power, Jesus, the vine. But once the power is provided, we still have to choose obedience. Have you ever been in a situation where you just knew that you knew that you knew that God was enabling you not to do something that you shouldn't do, but you chose to do it anyway? I've been in that situation. I've had moments, I mean, this is so sinful. Had moments where I knew God doesn't want me to do this. I don't have to do it. I'm going to do it. You've had those moments. We've all had those moments. And so God provides the power, but we still have to have a will. Uh, we still have a will that we have to exercise and choose obedience, choose to tap in, choose to allow that power to flow through us. So remaining, it seems to me, involves God supplying the power we don't have on our own, but it does require something from us. The action of choosing to allow God's power to have its way in our lives, choosing to be obedient as he empowers us to be obedient. We're so often torn between whether fruit is all a result of God or whether our effort plays a role. And so, uh, again, I just describe it this way. The fruit is all a result of God's power that is flowing through the vine, Jesus Christ. We can do nothing on our own. But again, our cooperation is always required. We cooperate by choosing obedience, choosing discipline, choosing to tap into the power that's available, and always flowing out of Christ to all who are attached to him. And considering that, I came upon a suggestion this week that I thought was worth sharing uh, with you. It's a, it's a suggestion of a better way to pray for fruit in our lives. You know, when we desire to be fruitful for God, here's a pretty common prayer that we pray. Lord, help me to live my life for you. Now, let me be clear. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. That's a good prayer, okay? Don't, don't take this uh, uh, the wrong way. 
But here might be a better way to pray. Lord Jesus, please live out your life through me. Lord Jesus, live out your life through me. Praying this way reminds us that fruit only comes when the life of Jesus is flowing through us. There's nothing in us to produce fruit. The source of life, the life that produces fruit is Jesus and Jesus only. Let's commit ourselves to staying in touch with him, choosing day in and day out to intentionally remain in him so that as we remain in him, his life flows through us producing the fruit that God desires. It's clear in our text that fruitfulness is important to God. Crystal clear. He commands us to be fruitful, and he supplies the source of life that enables us to produce the fruit that he commands. It's important to God for the two reasons I mentioned at the start of this message. It's important to God because our bearing fruit brings him glory, But it's also important to God because our bearing fruit is so important to our experiencing the joy that he wants us to have in life. Look again at verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Some translations say so that your joy may be full. Friends, I think that the main point that Jesus is trying to make here is not so much about whether folks can lose their salvation or not. Jesus tells us very plainly what the reason for his teaching is. He wants his joy in you, and he wants your joy complete. This will only happen, it will only happen as we remain in him and allow his life to flow through us, producing the fruit that pleases God. I'm reminded of the closing of the book of Ecclesiastes. The writer there had experienced all that the world could offer. It left him feeling that everything was meaningless. And then at the end, it's like he he comes to the truth. He, He sees the light. He realizes that everything he had been pursuing just led to emptiness and hopelessness. And he finally realizes what the key to it all is. And and right at the very end of that book, he says, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments. I've experienced all there is. I've done the best the world can offer and it left me with nothing. Here's what I've decided life is about. Fear God and keep his commandments. Are you remaining in him today? May every single one of us here remain in him. Allow his life to flow through us. Produce the fruit that gives him glory and brings us joy. You are, I am, we are God's vineyard. He paid a very high price for us. And so he wants us fruitful. He gives us the power to do it. So I appeal to all of us here today, remain in him for God's glory and for your joy. Why don't you stand up?